This is the Fixed Plasm podcast, dissecting fiction for role-playing inspiration. And I'm Ralph. This episode I'm going to be talking about Autonomous by Annalee Newitz. Their first full-length novel, I think, although they're widely published in a range of tech journals, and they're also the author of non-fiction, I think about five books, and several short stories. So if you look on the cover of Annalee Newitz's Autonomous, you see a quote from Neil Stevenson that says, quote, Autonomous is to biotech and AI what Neuromancer was to the internet. That's written, you know, that's a double dose of cyberpunk street cred right there with, uh, you know, name-checking both Gibson and Neil Stevenson. Now, of course, I'm jumping nearly three decades into the future by going from previously talking about early 90s near-future fiction to 2017. So the question we've got to say is, is this actually a cyberpunk novel? Is it even a post-cyberpunk novel? I talked about Stevenson's uh, Snow Crash being uh, a pastiche of cyberpunk, and that's the time when cyberpunk was, you know, a hot new thing. That's uh, eight years after Neuromancer. Now, in 2017, we've got a different relationship with cyberpunk and a different political awareness. And I think both of these show through in the novel, while still preserving the essential traits of cyberpunk, the the focus on capitalism, private corporations, body modification, the disposability of the meat body, and a few other things. And I'll get to those in the themes bit. So as usual, I'm going to talk about the synopsis first. And then I'm going to talk in depth about the themes of it. And then finally, I'm going to talk about the role-playing bit. And the role-playing bit, it's going to be a continuation of the ideas for my game Zaibatsu about a group of corporate workers in a prefab village set off in a remote area as a sort of seed community developed by a corporation. Part 1. Synopsis Jack is a pharmaceutical pirate reverse engineering patented drugs from her submersible in the Arctic Circle for distribution to those who who can't afford the exorbitant prices set by the uh, pharmaceutical companies who have absurd patents on what should be freely available drugs, or cheaply available drugs. Now, when she duplicates a drug called Security, which is produced by the Zaxi Corporation as a work enhancer, she initially thinks she's made an error as the street copy causes people to obsess over work and ignore their basic physical needs, like food and water, uh, leading to several deaths. But she discovers that what she's done is she's accurately copied the um, drug and that actually what happened was Zaxi released the drug which makes work addictive instantly by effectively creating a dopamine response to work. So she sets out to make good on her mistake by producing a cure and attempting to expose Big Pharma for their unethical and illegal drug practice. Now to do this she enlists help from former activists from her student days when they all liberated shipments of drugs and held notions of free and open source biochemistry for the benefit of all. They come up against Big Pharma and the supranational IPC, or International Property Coalition, which takes down anyone messing with corporate IP with extreme prejudice and employs corporate soldiers for that purpose. The IPC characterised Jack as a terrorist, and this is the line and the philosophy taken by its agents, as a human with a cybernetic skin perimeter called Elias, and an indentured AI biobot named Paladin from a South African foundry. The plot sees these two groups converge. The IPC basically leaves a trail of destruction as they search for Jack and her colleagues. And at the same time, Jack 
continues her mission. She picks up a couple of companions. One is an interesting character called 3Z, a young indentured man whose contract was sold to a thief who tried to rip Jack off and, and got a knife in his throat for his trouble. Through 3Z and Paladin, we, we learn about the philosophy of, of indenture and autonomy, how bots are created indentured for up to 10 years, but they can gain an autonomy key and how human law perversely enabled humans becoming indentured slaves by some notion of parity with artificial intelligence. 3Z's backstory is, is his school went bankrupt and he was sold into indenture at the age of 14 as a mechanic and sex slave. For Paladin, the bot has an organic brain, but it's actually only used for facial recognition, and the controlling AI has no concept of gender, but it doesn't stop Paladin's partner Elias from anthropomorphizing them, eventually referring to the bot as she, and forming a romantic relationship which the bot reciprocates. Hmm. We also meet Med, which is short for Medea, who's an autonomous biobot bio PhD student that is instrumental in the cure for security, which they call Retcon. It also makes decisions prioritising the well-being of its human colleagues, despite not being indentured. So it's an artificial being, but motivated by interpersonal loyalty and also political and economic considerations. It shares the credo of free and open source biotech and also seeking justice for Zax's victims and displaying an emotional response in doing so. We also get a fair chunk of Jack's backstory as a young activist, including her loves and scientific triumphs and brushes with the IPC, which show them up for the mindless fascist thugs that they are. Now, the novel wraps up with a confrontation between the IPC agents and Jack, where everyone survives, unexpectedly. Big Pharma is not brought to account and manages to brush everything under the carpet, in a, in a fairly cynical example of the interaction between corporate and, and academia. Elias and Paladin quit being soldiers and, and live happily ever after. Other characters resume their academic careers or switch jobs. And that's basically it. There's not much more plot. We've basically got a, a convergence of two different people on, on two missions that are bound to come into conflict with each other. What happens in between that is in the most interesting parts of the world building, which I'm going to talk about now in the themes bit. Part two, themes. So technology-wise, this is clearly post-cyberpunk. Elias has this sort of embedded mesh in his skin, some characters are getting cellular messages popping up in one of their eyes as augmented reality. And of course, drugs are sophisticated. There's a, there's, this there's a throwaway line about some people conditioning themselves for certain kinds of drug resistance. A bit like treating the body as an organic computer which can run biochemical software. You know, alongside that, we have the transhuman and posthuman stuff of AI and manufactured people. And you know what it means to be conscious and crucially the concept of earned autonomy and at the end paladin describes their autonomy as being all about privacy the right to have thoughts that only it can access and also the right to prioritize its needs without consulting or considering its master so as i said genre-wise this is clearly post-cyberpunk it extrapolates a number of themes especially corporate oversight and physical modification but the scope also covers the concepts of indentured servitude, the rights of artificial life forms, and in particular, how they're anthropomorphized and sexualized by their peers. The first theme I want to talk about is activism. Now, a lot of the drive for the characters is the need to do good against the corporations. 
especially making drugs more affordable. And that's that's the whole of Jack's backstory and the other characters she comes into contact with. And this theme pitches PCs directly against a corporation that is faceless, self-interested, defensive, manipulating government rules to get their way, and so on and so forth. The corporations are something of a uh, a one-dimensional one monster in this environment, but that's okay because the important thing is the the activism part. Now, this role of being an activist has a lot of narrative legitimacy to a player character, so it's a really compelling device. And if the corporations are releasing deniable assets to stop them, so much better for the plot. I mean, that'll really move things along, assuming they don't just die. Activists are going to feel justified in the actions that they take. And that raises an interesting question. Just how nuanced is the opposing side's position? How much do the agitators empathise with their side? As I said, in this instance, Zaxi is a pretty one-dimensional corporation. Uh, it is unremittingly evil. But let's think about the corporate side and the corporate spin. One thing that we can think about is the public perception of the situation, whatever that is. So the pressure group who says healthcare should be available to all. On the other side, there's the corporation that decries the activist method, saying that it's reverse engineered black market drugs that are a health hazard rather than a force for good, and so on. What happens when one side is proven wrong? What behaviour will that revelation prompt in either side? So we should think about this from both sides. The corporation's investment in, air quotes, being right, is mostly about money, uh, corporate liability and responsibility, uh, exposure to class action lawsuits, fines for regulatory breaches. But the activist's investment is ideological and emotional. When you question someone's ideology, they might respond with modifying their behaviour, but they might also just just deny the facts and double down. And we've seen plenty of this in politics today. Admittedly, the court could also you know, double down and, and deny or outright lie to everyone's faces. You do have to ask how much they're invested in the ideology of their product, the, uh, you know, the shit that they're selling. Often, though, that's going to come from the ego of a figurehead. So one thing that the corporation could do is if they've got a mouthpiece, someone to hate on, who takes the threats against the company personally, well, then you've kind of got the the mirror of the activist behaviour, narcissism and uh, some sort of twisted ideology or some sort of sense of personal self-worth invested in the corporation. But mostly, I think the corporations are going to be about money. It makes me think of a film, uh, THX 1138. This is, I think, George Lucas's directorial debut before he did Star Wars. And there's a really memorable bit at the end. So that film is about a sort of drugged underclass of a dystopian white underground. And the titular character is, is trying to escape. And the final scenes are all about the pursuit. And there, there's this countdown clock. And it's not the amount of time they've their pursuers have is the amount of money that they've spent in pursuing these two assets. In other words, uh, there's a break point at which pursuing them further becomes no longer economically viable. So it's quite a good bit of satire, but it also really works when considering corporate behaviour and other genres, including this. The corporate behaviour is going to be based on a balance sheet, and eventually it might make some more sense to settle out of court than you know, risk further exposure.
And there might be at some point it, it, it makes sense to deploy black ops assassins to stop the threat. But, uh, but after a while, that might not be possible. Your activists do have certain defences against these corporate misdeeds. And one of them is, of course, revealing the truth and having it broadcast. That would shut down any activity that might raise further questions. You know, the sudden disappearance of the activists, for example. So if you think of the corporation as a sort of, you know, it's an entity with a certain number of resources, you have to work out how much money they've spent throughout pursuing and, and prosecuting their side of the story. And at some points, it's no longer economically viable to take certain actions. Or it might it might provoke a, a more extreme response. At, at the lowest level, they might have you know, denial of what they're doing, discrediting activists, etc., and as things get higher level, then they might start to silence activists. And then when they can't do that, they end up settling out of court. And then it's a damage limitation exercise. They're going to be driven by harm to their corporate reputation, which you know, it's not like an ego. Well, I suppose it is a little bit like an ego, but it's more to do with their viability in the marketplace and their exposure to regulatory fines and bridges of certain rules and certain laws. But let's not forget why the world needs activists in the first place. There's a culture of drug patterns which you know, means a huge gap between the haves and the have-nots when it comes to healthcare. And that's not the worst of it, really. There's also a culture of human indenture and, and also non-human indenture, um, hence the title of the book, Autonomous. It's not just the slavery, of course, that's horrifying, as one of the characters is effectively indentured as a, a child prostitute. It's also how it could happen. And an example of um, 3Z, the character was enrolled in a school and, and they were looking forward to learning and, and having effectively a good life in the future. And then the school went bankrupt and, as a consequence, effectively sold its students into slavery. In this world, everything has a dollar value. And, and it's worth noting that people who are indentured are electronically tabbed. They have a, a subdermal microchip. And characters can be protected by being franchised by a benevolent patron. But otherwise... A runaway who manages to you know, remove their ID somehow, somehow has very poor employment prospects. So then you've got to think about, well, this must create an underclass of runaway slaves and people hiding out. Where are they hiding? What jobs are they doing? That brings me to another point, actually. So you need some kind of foothold in the society and the culture in order to have a good job. And people are going to cling to those jobs. And there are examples of, of that in the book. If you don't have connections to enable you to do a legal activity, you need identifiers to be able to do legal work. Or you end up working, you know, pretty shitty jobs. But now, let's get back to the concept of drugs and the availability of drugs and other sort of basic needs of a, of a uh, future society. The high-cost drugs are only really available to either the really wealthy or those with you know, a corporate medical care, which in itself is, is a kind of form of social control of corporate employees. It's very insidious that a corporation might have a policy of administering a performance-enhancing drug to its employees as a, as a requirement of their corporate contract. So this is a culture where your very physiology is regulated by your employer. 
it basically amounts to corporate totalitarianism. That, I think, is the most interesting part of the setting and some of the most interestingly gameable parts. But before we move on, I guess I should briefly mention biotech. Now, mostly I think, you know, you can exchange cybernetic enhancement for biological or genetic or chemical enhancement in various RPGs. They make you smarter, faster. They uh, overlay um, virtual or augmented realities in your vision, that sort of thing. The question I have is, you know, is a biological or chemical manipulation more or less intrusive than cyberware? Um, I don't really have an answer for that. I think it's more important to consider the intrusion of any technology on humanity. But the question is, does this become a habit? Can it be administered without consent? And cyberware, in a lot of cases, it requires consent. Does biological or chemical modification require consent? Well, if you can put it in food and water, or if you can mandate your employees to be modified... Well, who knows? Of course, this isn't just sort of pharma tech or, or, or pharma punk angle. There's there's the whole sort of artificial life form aspect, and in particular, emancipation of the AI from their master. And in order to have emancipation, you have to have a mature technology, and you have to have a public acceptance of the idea of AI and a socially aware legal system. So you contrast this with Neuromancer's handling of AI, where... They're, they're basically a regulated commodity, but they are property more than anything else. And there are rules around constructions in AI. I think it's the, the, something like the Turing Convention or something like that. Uh, that drives you know the construction of Wintermute, the AI in Neuromancer. But autonomy in that genre isn't something we consider so much, not from a legal point of view. Instead, we do have concepts like AI's gaining sentience, and being corporate property or property of a group. And we have the moral question about whether they should be free. And so that's present here. But what we don't have is a society and a legal system that supports that decision. So this is very much a cyberpunk novel. We call say post-cyberpunk. No, it is cyberpunk because it logically extrapolates the themes from 30 years ago and reinforces them rather than overcomes them. We do have this problem of corporate totalitarianism. We do have this problem of identity and the legal rights of people and the creation of an underclass, the separation of wealth, the need to have a corporate sponsor. Those are all, I would say, part of the cyberpunk retrofuture. Part three, the role-playing pit. For the role-playing part, um, I'm going to continue in the same vein as before, thinking about the effects of you know, some of these themes and how they can be incorporated in the game I'm considering called Zaibatsu. So Zaibatsu is, if you haven't listened to the other episodes, it's a um, either a drama system or a Powered by the Apocalypse game, I haven't decided which. It's a cyberpunk game about people in a corporate seed village or colony in a remote location that's being populated by a sort of prefabricated corporate village, if you like, um, near future Milton Keynes or something, but set in somewhere a lot less hospitable than um, Buckinghamshire. And the main thing I want to take away from this one is the concept of indenture. 
Now, I'm not saying that I'd want the players to play slaves, but I would want the concept of the corporation, and there is one corporation, everyone works for the same corporation, I would want that to intrude on their lives. How can it intrude? Well, the corporation controls all of their resources. It could, in theory, be surveying them whilst they're sleeping, or whatever they're doing in the village, and it may it may well control their comings and goings from the corporate village. What if we apply a, a sort of farmer punk or a biopunk philosophy to this and take some examples from autonomous? We could have maybe not illegal but poss- quite likely unethical dosing of the corporate workers with certain drugs. Perhaps they have their medical state monitored regularly and certain certain functions have to fall within certain parameters according to the corporate rules and according to their contract. What kind of problems might that cause? You can think of a couple. One of them is if your contract requires you to have a certain fitness or a certain medical state and you need to take corporate mandated drugs to achieve that, what do those drugs do? You either try to deal with your symptoms without taking the drugs and those cause problems or you take the drugs and you get a whole load of side effects that cause a different set of problems. Once you start thinking about chemical regulation of the employees, then you're edging into the kind of uh, near future dystopia. In some cases, utopia, but um, I think mostly it's dystopian. The idea that people need to have their bodies regulated to function as a, as a useful unit. Now, let's take this a step further even worse, what if a corporation is, as I considered in a previous episode, experimenting on the people in the village? Just doing surveillance or social manipulation is one thing. And in some cases, there's, there's a certain, there are certain defences against that. Uh, you choose who you speak to, where you meet. If you can't control the drugs you're ingesting, it becomes a lot harder to resist. Before I get into the design stuff that I'm thinking about, I want to talk about the concept of cyber prep. Um, It is a recognised genre, at least according to Wikipedia, but I first encountered the term in in cyberpunk, and this was both a, a character archetype and a genre, and the genre is this. It's cyberpunk without the punk. So it's without the street level stuff, and it's supposedly rich people who are... You know, they, they use cyberware for recreational purposes and cosmetic purposes and generally to make their lives better and to enjoy themselves rather than to do a specific job, although you, you have to expect that, that they may also have that. Now, there's a question about where that genre came originally came from. It could quite easily have all originated from GURP cyberpunk, and because that's, you know, three decades ago, no one really actually appreciates that's where it came from. I don't know. I'd be interested to find out if somebody actually coined the phrase before then and do a bit more research. But here's the fundamental thing about cyberprep, and it's very important for this corporate setting. Supposedly, cyberprep is more or less a utopian setting. Now, I think there are a lot of different discussions about utopia and dystopia and what people think those are. I have heard the phrase, or oh, one person's utopia is another person's dystopia, which I wasn't very impressed with. But it did make me think in this instance about how that could actually be true. Now, let's say cyberpunk is often called dystopian. And the main reason it's dystopian is because we have um, powerful entities, corporations and others, who are totally untouchable by the ordinary person. They provide all the services and they control what you watch 
and uh, they can look at you at any time they want and they can kill you at any time they want. That's basically uh, a pretty good example of a dystopian state there. Now let's consider the people who are outside the corporation. They're going to experience that as a result of the corporation's fundamental selfishness or protectionism or whatever. But the people inside the corporation who will benefit from the corporation could well be seeing it as a, a utopian situation where inside the corporation uh, behaves like a benevolent government that exists solely to perpetuate itself and in doing so it looks after its employees it gives them everything that they could want it treats them like family so this is the idea that i've got for this remote corporate village now i want to talk about the mechanics of actually running that village because it's not going to be perfect of course it isn't that's the whole point and I've said in the past, I was thinking of a couple of different systems. One is drama system, which could work. The other one is Powered by the Apocalypse. Now, Powered by the Apocalypse has a couple of really good, interesting features for constructing setting and threats. And so I, when I started to think about this, I said, well, the, the corporation is itself a front in Apocalypse World parlance. Uh, that's Apocalypse World 1st Edition. I think 2nd Edition, they've done away with fronts and they just have a threat map, which is neater and it's simpler and it makes a lot more sense. But I like the 1st Edition approach. And what I particularly like is Urban Shadows. I have in the past thought that Urban Shadows uh, basically decodes Apocalypse World and makes it useful and gives really great examples about how the system is actually supposed to work in its own interpretation, of course, but I think Urban Shadows is a really great read for getting to grips with Power by the Apocalypse, full stop. In Urban Shadows, then, the fronts are actually called the Storm, but it's still the same idea, more or less. In first edition Apocalypse World, it says this about fronts, that they're a set of linked threats, and they're all based around a fundamental scarcity. Um, the idea is you have a fundamental scarcity that could be hunger, thirst, ignorance, envy, etc., uh, then you create threats around it, which could be your brutes, your grotesques, the, the landscape or whatever, uh, and then stakes questions and such. And that's putting it fairly succinctly. Makes a lot of sense, difficult to decode. The Urban Shadows take on it is even better for a couple of reasons. One, one of them is it much more explicitly says, you know, follow people around the first session, work out what their individual threats are, then link all the threats together. In Urban Shadows, there are five threat types, three of which I think actually would work really well just lifted straight away for a corporate setting. The five threat types in that are revolution, power play, passion, ritual, and territory. And of those three, um, passion and ritual will be harder to bring in, but I think revolution, power play, and territory will all work in a corporate setting. So let's say that you have characters who are members of a corporation. They're all going to be affected by internal or external claims on territory that may manifest in different ways, whether that's an internal shake-up or whether it's actually something physically encroaching on the territory, whether it's a another hostile corporation or something like that. So what you want to do is you want to build this, this you know, front, this storm, call it whatever you like. You have a number of different threat types that can emerge and the best thing is if they emerge through playing out the first session so for example you could have an internal power play that involves one of the characters on an excursion to the corporate head office in the city a very difficult court meeting um, you could have another threat which is to do with territory let's say there's actually a concern about keeping 
the corporate village in this remote area safe and there's actually a real threat there. Maybe the territory is a political concern because the locals don't like it there. Maybe it is uh, another corporation setting up stall nearby, um, spying on the village or something like that. And you can involve characters that way. This is nothing particularly revolutionary. If you've played Plenty of Power by the Apocalypse, you probably know better than me. But I'm, I'm reading the book and taking inspiration from it. Once you've got your threats down, this is what Urban Shadows tells you to do. You can apply a bunch of countdown clocks to it, you can make custom moves, that sort of thing for what happens when the characters interact with the threat, try to oppose it, do something with it, interrogate it. But then the, the next bit, the, the point where you link everything together, and I really like the way Urban Shadows does this, is the creation of the storms. It starts with choosing a fundamental obligation. So what, what is a fundamental obligation? Well, according to the book, it's a theme around which the storm revolves, both literally and metaphorically. And the obligations are seven in the book, which are community, duty, family, fealty, fellowship, honour, justice. Now, because I want to make this corporate focused, I thought that instead of having obligations, instead of having obligations, I would have corporate drives. They're basically what the corporation sees as success. And people will ascend its ranks and get what they want within the corporation by thinking the way the corporation does. So sample corporate drive, conquest, that's conquest of corporate rivals. Market share, a little more benign than conquest. So let's say if conquest is uh, hostile takeovers, market share is um, more of a, a rivalry. Reputation, that's actually going to be how the public see you. Um, ethics, as Ethics might be an important thing for the corporation to be acting in the best interests of humanity. And prestige. Prestige at, uh, for example, providing the best service of a recognised service type, you know, the best type of computer or software, um, the best type of, uh, the best weight loss programme, the best television services, that, that kind of thing. I think really all I'm talking about is reskinning the apocalypse world stroke urban shadows rules with a more of a corporate bent and getting some specific examples so that it plays out in a way that makes sense. So then if you start the game by looking at how these threats emerge and how they're made personal to characters, how do you involve the players? Well, you're going to want to express the character in terms of the contract they have with a corporation and think about the kinds of hold or hook the corporation has in them. It could be financial. The corporation provides them with wealth. And that's it. It's not very interesting. Unless they actually need the money because they're in debt to something else. And working the corporation is the only way that they can balance their life. It could be something to do with family. If the corporation offers benefits to the employee's whole family, and those benefits are absolutely essential for the family's survival uh, if, they, if they didn't have the medical aid that the corporation provides. Remember, we've talked about fantastically costly drugs that only corporate employees or the very, very wealthy can get their hands on. That's a reason why the character must stay within the corporation, and it also gives you know, an insight into their home life. It could be that they give a benefit such as enhancement, that they elevate the character in some way. They put them in touch with cyberspace. They expand their consciousness. They make them faster or stronger. Uh, they make them able to perceive things that normal people aren't able to perceive. Effectively, 
the character can't live without this these kind of corporate granted superpowers. It could even be ideological. Something about the corporation uh, is aligned with the character's values. And one of the other things that we've also got to think about is how do we measure how well the character is doing in the corporation? And I think the way I would the way that you have to do it is you have some kind of internal reputation. So how far you are up the corporate ladder. It's not just about your job title, it's also about what people perceive you to be like, how they how they feel that you fit in. Your characters are going to have certain levels of access in the corporation. Uh, it could be paranoia-style access uh, of security level, or it could be access to certain people because you have a personal network. That access is always a benefit, but you'd have to probably balance that access off with disadvantages. Now, of course, if you have different characters at different levels of access, um, there's a couple of ways you can handle that. I'm not particularly bothered about having people balanced. What matters is that they have time in the spotlight. So maybe it's best not to quantify the level of access and how much benefit that gives. But it is worth bearing in mind in terms of the trouble, the kinds of trouble that people can get into. If they are liked in corporate circles and they're brought into private meetings and they're burdened with additional knowledge or secrets they have to keep or unpleasant jobs they have to do, that's one lever that the MC can apply to the characters. If they're disliked, then it's quite possible they'll be given jobs to do where they'll end up being the scapegoat if it fails, or they're just being set up anyway for a fall, or they're just being you know, shoved off, shoved off into a corner somewhere to be ignored. The last thing I want to think about is the corporate culture, and this is much more colour rather than uh, mechanical. But it's just just to say that the game needs to reflect the corporate culture in the world. So things like branding, corporate core values, you know, appraisals and goals. I mean, that could be an interesting scene. Uh, you could even give everyone goals if you know, that's going to be a, a mechanical thing that uh, all the characters need to move towards. Uh, you could have corporate internal management, uh, internal investigations, budgets. You could have corporate silos. Uh, by that I mean people who are focused in one area to the expense of another. Maybe they're, they're ignorant or maybe they're actually um, vying for the same resources. You could have uh, personal empire building, building of territory. That would work very well with a territory threat. Uh, point scoring versus other departments, that's all more of the same thing, I think. Uh, obviously, bureaucracy, paperwork, approvals, delegation, all that sort of thing. Accountability and blame, performance metrics. So, I'm throwing these out at the moment. I think some of these will fit into threats or MC moves, which need to be thought about. Some will fit into an advancement system. So, there could be a two advancement tracks for example one is to do with your personal life goals and what you really want out of life and the other one might be to do with how well you're advancing in the corporation now i'm just going to close with a couple of thoughts about this kind of genre i've been fixated on city fiction in the past and that's you know a city is a big um, heterogeneous pot of things going on but in this case we're thinking of a village rather than a city it's smaller it's more controlled the, um, there's fewer people to interact with. And I was thinking about 
examples of quote-unquote village fiction. One that immediately springs to mind is The Prisoner, which has its own hierarchy, its own um, social climbing, that sort of thing. Another one which is in the weird fiction area is there's Twin Peaks, and also Wayward Pines, which was influenced by Twin Peaks, but that's basically another village organisation. In fact, there's probably quite a few different examples of small-town America which have isolated. Um, Riverdale is probably a good example, and Sabrina the Teenage Witch both exist in the same fictional universe, as far as I know. So there's a number of different considerations there. And with that in mind, the other model to take is probably Monster Hearts. So I haven't really thought too much about how that would work, but some of the setup with Monster Hearts should probably be borne in mind in terms of the feel of the village. Not the corporation, but the village as a self-contained entity. I'm going to leave it there, because I've got quite a bit of stuff to unpack about that. So, thank you for listening, and until next time, ta-ta. If you like this episode, please like, share and subscribe. Give us a review on iTunes or otherwise spread the word. We're on Twitter and Facebook as well. All music on this podcast is by Chris Zabriskie. Find out more at chriszabriskie.com. Mm-hmm.